Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, it's matchmaking season, for better or for worse. Some of you are bracing yourselves because you know that you're about to experience moms and uncles and grandmas trying to make matches for you over the Christmas holiday. And you know you're going to have to say, Aunt Rita, my boyfriend's right here. But we don't always roll our eyes at matchmaking. Many of us will turn on a Christmas movie sometime in the next few weeks in which the plot makes us feel a strong sense of, hey, these two are meant to be together. I hope they don't miss each other. I mean, he's giving signals, but she misinterprets. Then she reciprocates, but he's moved on. Right? You can tell they have feelings for each other, but relationally they're miles apart. Ah, somebody bring them together, right? Whatever you think about the big city girl who gets lost in a small skiing village where she starts to fall for the handsome owner of this struggling Christmas tree farm, but they just keep missing each other. I wonder if you've ever felt that way with respect to Jesus. Like you're just missing each other. I mean, if the Bible is right, that every romantic relationship is ultimately supposed to be a dim pointer to the ultimate relationship between Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. If human marriages were always meant to be a metaphor for that greater reality, why does it so often feel like the bridegroom is miles away? Here's what I mean. This is what it sometimes feels like. feels like Jesus has done his thing over here. He came to earth on Christmas so that he could live a perfect life and die for me. He came back from the dead to be with me forever. I've been doing my thing over here. I go to church when I can. I've tried to go along with the religious stuff I'm supposed to do. But Jesus and I are missing each other. It feels like Jesus is way over there. And I'm way over here. Sure, he died for me, and I believe that. But then why doesn't it feel like I have a relationship with him? I was there once. Raised in the church. Learned all the Bible memory verses. Yet I found myself wondering, in my most honest moments, like, if Jesus is supposed to be the one for me, like I've been told since I was little, why does it feel like it's just not clicking? Why does it feel like we're kind of missing each other? We need a matchmaker to step in and bring together the bride and the groom. And there's a story in the Bible in which somebody does just that. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 24? It's page 17 in the chairback Bibles. As you're turning there, just a reminder that this Advent we've been considering several gifts. During the first week of the series, Dr. Bilek preached on God the Father's gift to us, his son. That gift was given for a purpose, namely that God's son was sent to be united with his bride, the church. That presents this matchmaking problem, though, that how, how does Jesus, the son of God, who's the bridegroom, and the church, who's his bride, get together? And we can restate that same question using the categories we featured in last week's sermon. Remember last week when we looked at the son's gift to us, his perfect life? We reflected on the fact that when we had failed to be the spotless bride that we were created to be, Jesus steps in like, don't worry, I'm spotless and can give my spotlessness to you. But what we didn't answer last week is how. 
How does his perfect life come to mean anything for me? How does it get from way over there where it seems to be to over here where it's credited to me, counted to me, transferred to me, to join bridegroom to bride in that way? Who's qualified for that matchmaking job? We're going to see today that the biblical answer is God's Holy Spirit. He's the matchmaker between Christ the bridegroom and the church his bride, and that's a gift that he gives to us. Now, for those here who are maybe a bit unfamiliar with what exactly a Holy Spirit is, a quick summary of the historic Christian teaching, which differs from Muslims and Unitarians and Buddhist conceptions of God. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed in what eventually came to be called the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity is a tri-unity, three in one. So how many gods are there? One. But how many persons are in that one God? Three. Right? Mystery, but the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Three equal persons joined together in love, yet of the same essence and therefore only one God. And we could spend the next three years preaching weekly on what this Holy Spirit does and still not cover all that Scripture says about his work. But today we're going to focus on the Spirit's role in, in matchmaking, for lack of a better word. Right? Without the Spirit, here's the situation that we're in. Christ's perfect life remains his own. Our guilt remains our own. And never the two should meet. Without the Spirit, Christ the bridegroom is over here. We, his potential bride, are over here. And the story ends in relational distance, like ships passing in the night. So the question we're asking today is, what did the Spirit do to pull off this match and to unite us to our bridegroom? So here's how we're going to get at this. We're going to walk through a biblical story that can be used to illustrate the Spirit's work by way of analogy. And then I'm going to reflect on why this matters for us at Christmas time. So first, the analogy from Abraham's nameless servant. Now bear with me because this is going to feel a little out of left field. And it certainly isn't going to seem all that Christmassy at first. But we'll get there. This is an analogy that was brought to my attention by Dr. Van Hooser at Trinity. We're in Genesis chapter 24. Hopefully you found it and are able to follow along. It's a matchmaking story. So here's what happens. Abraham was now old, getting on in years. And the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So, we've got the servant, manager of everything Abraham owns. The servant enjoys an extreme level of trust and relational intimacy with Abraham. How many people... Have you invited to place their hand under your thigh, right? The servant is never named because the story is not about him. In many ways, he's presented as, as an extension of Abraham and Isaac, authorized to speak for them, to act on their behalf, to buy and to sell and to manage. He's got full power of attorney, we might call it. So the servant swears to Abraham he'll do exactly what Abraham has sent him to do, namely to find the right wife for his son. He loads up Abraham's goods and sets out, shows up at a spring. He prays that God will send the right woman to the spring and that he'll know it's the right woman because she'll offer, water to, uh, offer to water his camels. And then here's what happens as he's praying. Before he had finished speaking this prayer, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. 
Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and for her wrists two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? he asked. Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. That's the right family for the marriage. So the servant rejoices in the following verses and thanks God for bringing success to his journey. And he goes with Rebekah to her father's house. When he's welcomed hospitably by Rebekah's family, he refuses to get distracted by enjoying himself. If you peek down there in chapter 24, you see he's singularly focused on the task for which Abraham has sent him. He tells the family everything about his journey. And when the family has heard all the servant has said, here's what they say. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go and let her be as a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious gifts to her brother and her mother. She wholeheartedly agrees when they ask her. They say their goodbyes. The servant takes Rebecca back to his masters, Abraham and Isaac, whom he's been representing in this whole story. And then the mission is completed here, just to wrap it up. Uh, now Isaac was returning. That's the son, Abraham's son, from Birlahai Roy, because he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. Rebecca looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who's that man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, it's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. Now, you're like, Tim, where in the name of Christmas are you going with this? <clears throat> it's worth reflecting on the parallels between the matchmaking work of Abraham's servant and the matchmaking work of the Holy Spirit, who unites the Son of God to his bride, the church. Right. So review this with me again. If Abraham's the father in the story, Isaac's the son, with the servant regarding both of them as master, so to speak, then isn't this servant in some ways like God's Holy Spirit? In verse 2, we saw that he's over everything that the father and son own, and so is God's Spirit, as evidenced by his hovering over the waters, as God the Father created the world through God the Son, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There's relational intimacy between Abraham and the servant. Remember the hand under the thigh. All the more for God's spirit with the father and with the son. So intimate with them that he knows them inside and out. We have in 1 Corinthians 2, a few weeks ago we looked at it. The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Intimacy between father, son, and spirit. And just as the servant is sent by Abraham and Isaac, so with the spirit who doesn't go on his own volition, but is always spoken of as being sent by Father, John 14, or Son, John 16, or both. This servant in the story we just read is singularly devoted to the task 
for which he's been sent. But the author's decision not to give us the name of the servant suggests that what's most important about this servant, for us the readers, is that he's the representative, the agent of Abraham and Isaac. When he speaks on their behalf, it's as if they themselves were speaking. He's an extension of them, in other words, an extension of their will and of their wishes. As is God's spirit with respect to the wishes of the Father and the Son. Here's John 16, 13. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. He will not speak on his own. but He'll speak whatever he hears. He'll also declare to you what is to come. God's spirit in scripture seems entirely uninterested in getting glory for himself. Everything he does, he's looking to serve the Father and the Son to bring glory to them. And we often see him operating behind the scenes in scripture. Namelessly orchestrating events in conjunction with God's purposes. And... Just as the great mission for which this servant was sent is to find a bride for Abraham's son, isn't that one of the main reasons why the Spirit is said to have been sent by God as well, to secure a bride for Christ? That's why in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, we have both showing up together, both the Spirit and the bride together, saying, come. We could go on to parallels about the adorning with gold and precious jewelry, which is just what the Spirit is said to do for the church in Isaiah 61.10. There's an analogy here, right? Now, before you say, Tim, hey, making Genesis 24 to be about the Trinity is a massive stretch. I'm not at all claiming that this is what Moses intended when he wrote Genesis 24. I'm just asking permission that if you're okay with when I make sermon analogies from TV shows and movies and sporting events, maybe you'll permit me drawing an analogy from this biblical story, right? It's an imperfect analogy, but it's one that can help us understand some dimensions of the Spirit's matchmaking work. In summary, what I'm trying to say is the Holy Spirit is like Abraham's nameless servant in, in this way. The servant's role, his, even his personhood, is so consumed with promoting the desires and the welfare of the one he's representing, that the servant's own identity, separate from the one he's representing, is almost treated as an afterthought in the story. It's almost irrelevant. Functionally, the servant serves as an extension of Abraham and Isaac, such that he's acting and speaking on their behalf, and his words are their words. That's God's spirit for us, right? Sent by the Father and by the Son, and consumed with the work of promoting the will and purposes of the Father and Son. And on top of that list, of all the will and all the purposes of Father and Son, on top of the list is to unite the Son to a pure spotless bride. That's us. Adorned with the finest beautifying accessories. So the significance, why this matters at Christmas time. Let's connect some dots. This Christmas season we've been remembering and celebrating what God's been doing over here to save us. Right? Gifts galore. The Father gives the gift of his Son. Amazing love. What a gift. The Son lives a perfect life, dies in our place, rises again. Another awesome gift. And meanwhile, parallel track, we are over here doing our thing in response to that gift of love. We're coming to church. We're worshiping him and praying to him. All the stuff we've been told is our part, so to speak, in making this relationship work. We've been doing it. But we can't shake the feeling, in some cases, that Christ and his benefits remain out of our reach like, it was supposed to feel like such a relief to be forgiven. You ever thought that? It's supposed to cure all my loneliness, to be reconciled to God. It's supposed to be 
such a sense of abundance in the present, such a, supposed to be, have such a peace regarding the future. To use imagery from our painting today, it was supposed to feel like we were branches. We were just pulsing with life from the vine. Instead, it just feels sometimes more like that middle school boyfriend or girlfriend that you waved at from across the cafeteria but never quite actually connected with. So how do these two parallel tracks become one? The Spirit. Look at Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body's dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. The good news of Christmas, friends, isn't good news without this. Until the Spirit unites us to Christ, all the benefits that are found in Christ are over there on the parallel track, on the other side of an unscalable wall, right? out of our reach. But if the Spirit breaks down that wall and unites these two tracks, then it all becomes ours. The forgiveness that we need the reconciliation of our broken relationship with God, the full, vibrant life that we've been yearning for, the future that we had grown hopeless about. And he's not waiting to see if we can somehow earn it. The Spirit's been eager to do this uniting work all along. He was the one who was at work in Christ's perfect life, in substitutionary death, and in raising Christ to life again. That was the Spirit that did that. And he was the one at work in convicting us of our sin over here on this track and moving us to turn to God and place our faith in Christ. God's work and our response were always meant to go hand in hand because the same spirit has been operational on both tracks. And let me tell you, friends, the first time that I felt that wall break down and those two parallel tracks merge into one, it was amazing. Some of you remember that experience that when you had it for yourself. Mine was Christmas break, 1998, 25 years ago this month. I remember this flood of realization washing over me. Not like a head realization, like a heart realization. Like, wait, it's all real. Those weren't just motions that I was going through. Well, they were motions I was going through, but they shouldn't have been, right? This, this is actually everything that I was ever made for. I'm in my room just weeping and dancing and like, wait, he did it for me. You know, this Christmas season, somebody here might find themselves experiencing this Jesus stuff in a different way than you've ever experienced it before. Don't be surprised if it happens. Even though this religion stuff has always kind of felt outdated to you or irrelevant to you, even though it's always been something you've considered to be fine for some people but not your thing, you haven't hated religious people by any means, but you haven't felt a need for that kind of crutch like religious people seem to need. Right? Don't be shocked when you suddenly start to experience Jesus differently. Like what's happening to me? Suddenly I'm intrigued by all this Jesus stuff that used to go in one ear and out the other. Suddenly it feels like it matters to my life. Suddenly eternity seems important to me. Suddenly I'm finding myself thinking about the implications if it's somehow true that God became a human being. Many of us sitting here on your right and left this morning could tell you a story of a season like that when God caught us by surprise. And what we used to think was quaint at best, lame or even harmful at worst, 
we suddenly felt irresistibly drawn to. Since then, we've come to learn that that force of attraction that pulled us in was the work of God's Holy Spirit. And it's that same spirit that's tugging on someone here today. When you start to experience that tug, that nagging, it's because God's Holy Spirit is helping you experience the uniting of those two previously parallel tracks. Right? He's joining you to the story of his son. Like a branch being grafted onto a vine, helping you to take your place in Christ's story. He's hitching you onto Christ, so to speak, so that Christ's story is becoming yours. His destiny is becoming yours, so much so that when he was living that perfect life, it was you living that perfect life. When he died, it was you dying to your sin. When he was raised to new life, it was you rising again to new life. The matchmaker has been saying, hey, I won't rest until the son finds his bride. And as part of that bride... You and I are experiencing the work of the matchmaker lavishing gifts on us and inviting us to what will one day be our wedding feast. Amen? So our big idea today is this. That God's Holy Spirit relationally connects us with Christ such that all his benefits are applied to us. There's other gifts the Spirit gives us, but that's a big one. That God's Holy Spirit relationally connects us with Christ such that all his benefits that used to be just way over there, out of our reach, are now applied to us. His righteousness, ours. Removal of guilt, ours. His inheritance, ours. Intimacy with God, ours. Peace amidst trouble, ours. Joy through adversity, ours. It's all ours. Because it's all Christ's, and now the Spirit has joined us to him. So this Christmas, every time Grandma asks you when you're going to find your match, Every rom-com you stream with two characters whose lives are running on parallel tracks. Remember, that's what we'd be without the Holy Spirit. Us over here, Christ over there. All his blessings out of our reach. What good would be all of his gifts if we never could gain access to them? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for joining us to Christ. For those who have been realizing this morning, hey, wait, my life is still running on parallel tracks to Jesus. I still haven't been intimately joined with him in this way. His, his benefits still feel removed, feel distant from me. Good news. God's spirit is eager to do that joining work, that uniting work. He's not withholding that from anybody who asks for it. Right? In fact, if you're feeling this strange and unexpected pull toward Christ today, that's there because the spirit has already been pursuing you in love. He knew it before you stepped in this morning that he was going to do that. That he was going to be drawing you to Christ. All that's left to do is to tell him that you believe. Scripture promises that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'll do that, and, and do it in your own words, but it could just be a prayer like this. God, I'm, I've been your enemy. I've ignored you. I've been running on this track over here, but I'm done with that now. I, I want the gift that's only available to me in Christ. If you'll throw yourself on him in that way. Tell him that you believe, that you're turning from your sin. His Holy Spirit will join you to Christ by faith. Let's pray. God, thank you that you don't leave us to run on a parallel track forever. <clears throat> thank you that your gift of salvation to us isn't just something that's in theory. Thank you that it isn't just an idea or a set of principles. Thank you that it's a relational connection that's available to us. And thank you for the matchmaking work of your Holy Spirit 
who joins those two tracks together and helps us to experience that Christ's life is ours, that his death is ours, that his resurrection is ours, that all the blessings found in him have become our own by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for the person this morning who has never experienced that but is starting to feel that little pull, that little tug on their heart. I pray that even maybe this morning, even before this person leaves today, and in the days to come leading up to Christmas, that they will experience something they've never experienced before, namely the joy of experiencing Christ's life becoming your own, union with him. In Jesus' name, amen.